0: everyone happy holidays this is the buddhist recovery network podcast today's talk is by kevin griffin recorded at the buddhist recovery summit that took place in Lacey, washington this last summer kevin has become a friend of mine since i started volunteering with the buddhist recovery network uh which is just really rad because his book burning desire, brought me closer to Buddhist philosophy, um, which heavily influenced my recovery, and especially my early recovery. Uh, I'd read a quote from the book, but I literally just gave away both my copies earlier today. Um, But I can say the section on equanimity and learning that everyone is responsible for their own equanimity really helped me move through some attachments I had Um, So yeah, if you get a chance, check out the book out, Burning Desire. Uh, If you want to support the Buddhist Recovery Network, we really appreciate you listening in. Um, But we are a volunteer-run organization. So if you have skills you like to offer the board, um, or you want to donate your time, uh, contact us at contact at BuddhistRecovery.org. Or you can offer financial support by going to BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate okay and here's the talk from Kevin Griffin on the Buddhist Suttas and the 12 Steps first uh,
1: uh, I'm Kevin Griffin MC to introduce us Uh, (laughs) I am an addict and an alcoholic. I I use that identification for skillful skillful purposes. I hope generally Occasionally, it's a good excuse for being an asshole, but you know other than that It's mostly uh, skillful and it's brilliant really beautiful What you've done today is really impressive and wonderful and, and uh, dare I say you know, that I've been with you through some of your growth as a teacher, and just you
2: know, you're really growing tremendously as a teacher. I really appreciate it.
1: If that doesn't sound too presumptuous of me to say that about you, I, I wanted to get, get step back a little bit from some of this, uh, and and maybe fill in some things that maybe we were assuming or we, we didn't. We didn't point out, which just the the big picture is that the the material that Vince and I work with, we we both kind of come through the Theravadin Buddhist tradition. That is only one of basically three major Buddhist traditions, and uh, and so if you've been going to, studying in one of the other ones, uh, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, this might seem completely. You'd be like, well, where do I find this? And and you and it, you'll have a hard time finding it in your tradition. So the Theravada, which Theravada means way of the elders, it is um, it is the oldest uh, still existing Buddhist tradition. It was one of something like 18 that arose after the time of the Buddha. Uh, all the, the other 17 or whatever uh, disappeared, and, and the Theravada was the most conservative one. It was sticking most strictly to the Buddha's ways. You know, The others were kind of like, well, well, can't we like loosen it up a little bit here and there? And they all kind of faded away. Theravada survived. So uh, uh, in succeeding years, some 500 years or so after the time of the Buddha, so we think of the Buddha as basically 500 B.C. That's how I just sort of conceptualize it. Uh, not exact, of course. But uh, some 500 t- years after that, there, there, there was this, maybe even less, the Mahayana, which is this sort of uh, frustration with the Theravada uh, monastics. They, they felt like they were kind of bogarting the teachings. You know, They were kind of keeping them to themselves and kind of making it like a very elitist teaching. And, the, and so the lay people and others uh, wanted to open it up a little bit. And, the, and there was also this idea that there, an understanding of, of Theravada and Buddhism was one interpretation of it, which I don't think is a fair one, but an interpretation was that it was self selfish in the sense that you were just trying to get yourself enlightened and then you were done, your work was done. And the Mahayana came up with, then with this vision of the Bodhisattva ideal in which you're practicing for the liberation of all beings. Uh, and uh, and so the Mahayana is what we find in in China, uh, Korea, and Japan, as well as Vietnam. And so the Zen tradition is a Mahayana Chan tradition, Pure uh, Pure Land, uh, and various others. Uh, so the, you know, like Christianity, it's not one thing, right? Uh, it's there's a lot a lot of different uh, traditions, and so eventually. Uh, Buddhism gets to Tibet uh, and then and gets, you know, the, and they, there it's called the Vajrayana, or just Tibetan Buddhism. And this takes on a whole different flavor. And one of the characteristics of all these traditions is that they take on the flavor of the culture, the existing cultures, that so they're very adapt. You can see the kind of Japanese culture in Zen. You can see the Tibetan culture in Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, and t- today, uh, the Theravadan buddhism Theravon buddhism is mostly practiced in burma thailand sri lanka K- cambodia and laos i guess and then in in the west uh, we have it here so uh, i uh, you know when you when you get introduced to buddhism uh, you know uh, they don't always give you all this sort of like outline, like you don't know where you are you know you're kind of like trying to find your way so just to give you a little context and uh, there's some good books on the history of Buddhism. How the Swans Came to the Lake. Beautiful book about uh, the arrival of Buddhism in the U.S. And then, uh, Awakening of the West, is it? Uh, Stephen Batchelor's book. Awakening of the West, I think, is how Buddhism got to Europe. And both of them kind of you know, give you the different perspectives on the history of Buddhism, which is pretty interesting if, if you like history. And then I was reflecting a little bit on uh, why Vince and I are doing this other than to educate you, <laughs> which is fun. But um, you know, one of my motivations is I love the suttas, and I've gotten really inspired by them, and I want people to get excited about them. And they're, it's not that easy to get excited about them, you know, when you first encounter them. They're a little you know, abstract and dry and confusing and repetitive in there. But, um, you know, once you sort of start to get the feel of how to navigate them, it's kind of like trying to navigate your own mind. You know, at first it's really confusing and you don't know what's going on in there. And then you start to be able to kind of categorize things. Oh, yeah, right, that's desire. That's great. You know, the the suttas are very much like that. You start to see certain phrases re- uh, repeat themselves, certain themes, and, and okay, you, you see where you can kind of skip ahead because of the repetition if you need to or if you want to just really absorb it, you just read it all and kind of take it in. Um, but the, uh, uh, my own... As, a, as, a, um, as someone who loves narrative, my own particular pleasure is finding the stories in the suttas, and there are some really wonderful, uh, some really crazy stories in the suttas. Uh, I'm not going to so much get into that today. Um, but then, you know, I come back to my original impulse as someone uh, working with Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. And and once again, I'm interested in kind of making those connections. And that's, that's um, what I'm kind of interested in doing a little bit today in the, in the short time, but just to give you a taste of that. And, and obviously um, Vince has uh, really emphasized, appreciated the emphasis on powerlessness, and unmanageability and, and uh, you know, this, to, to look at the sutras in this way takes creativity. And imagination they 're not to be just read as like dry academics subjects but but to look and see what do I see in there what is what is really being said to me and because i 've never seen the word powerless, for instance, in the suttas, right uh, and so uh, we have to to make those connections so, um, the, again, this brings me back to kind of this impulse like why is it that I wanted to bring Buddhism and the 12 steps together. And this goes back a ways. I, I, I started to do this work almost 20 years ago, and and it's changed so much that, you know, you get kind of uh, uh, some distance from it, because uh, so at that time, I didn't really conceive of of a recovery program detached from the 12 steps, you know, the purely Buddhist, and in fact, I was advised by some people not to rewrite the 12 steps into, into some separate language. And I've seen people try to do that with Buddhist language, and it is ugly, in my opinion. Aesthetically, you know, it just doesn't... It, it's, I think, better to leave it, leave it alone and
2: then do what you can with the language.
1: But, clearly, you know, I when I started this, you know, I was long-time Buddhist practitioner, and I'd been sober for pretty long, too, and I'd seen so many people suffer around the language of the 12 steps, and I had found that for myself I could interpret that language through Buddhist ideas, Buddhist teachings, and that seemed like something I'd like to share, as well as the fact that when I would go to an 11th step meeting, and people would meditate for five minutes and then they'd spend an hour and a half discussing how hard it was to to be quiet for five minutes i thought maybe they could use some help with meditation uh, just saying so th- there was that obvious connection but i also must say and this is where i have failed in my work in, ter- in term- at least in terms of uh you know how it's been received i also believe that the 12 steps have something to offer to Buddhism and that the, to the greater Buddhist community that's, that's missed. Uh, and that, that uh, but they're not, they don't seem very interested. They, those people, whoever they are, those uh, blurry figures off in the mist who I can blame.
2: So uh, I guess maybe to
1: to get into I guess get into a couple of suttas, Um So to go, to do this a little bit through the lens of the steps. Again, uh, it's hard for me to start talking about the steps without talking a little bit more about the steps. That is to kind of uh, you know, I get another sort of argument that I've made for a long time is that. Any two spiritual, any two authentic spiritual paths must share the same essential components, or many of the same components, uh, and that could be argued. But that's my my sort of working thesis, and so that's one of the reasons why. I'm like, okay, if there's this, then how? Where can I find the corollary there? And, and uh, of we could spend a lot of time on step one because, you know, I, I have a whole piece on that. That, But, but I think um, maybe to move on from that so we get a little further into this process to look at it. Uh, so step two, as many or most of you know, says... Uh,
2: uh, yeah, when I
1: try to quote steps... Let's see. We started by admitting we were powerless over alcohol. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So, you know, when I first heard that step, I thought, oh, this means I have, if I just believe in God, I'll, get, I'll be sober, right? That's kind of the, like literal, like, that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. But so looking, okay, where do I find this in Buddhism? And where I think we find it is in this third noble truth. So, You've been looking at the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering. The the third noble truth can be understood to mean that despite the fact that there is suffering and that here's this cause, which, as you've said, is so sort of natural, it seems to be. it's it's very much instinctual, wired into humans, that nonetheless, it is possible to be free from suffering. And that's what I think step two is saying. We came to believe that, uh, let's set aside the power, okay? Because obviously, if anything's going to happen, there's power involved. But just so people don't get nervous about God, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it later. That, uh, that we could be restored to sanity. You know, that's, that idea is the critical one. The God part isn't really so important. The important one is, you mean I don't have to live like this forever? You mean there is a way? There is a way. That's the essence of the third noble truth. There is a way out of suffering. And that's the, you know, the great message. It's the great hope. Right? So when we have that, you know, we, if we don't believe there is a way, we will not engage in the way. You know, so uh, this is why faith is essential to all spiritual paths. Many people come to Buddhism thinking, oh, I'm not, you know, I, I don't like those faith-based religions where I have to believe in God or I have to believe in some magical stuff. Buddhism seems really great because it's very practical. There's no faith involved. Well, Okay. What's involved in walking into a room and sitting down, closing your eyes, and sitting there doing nothing for 45 minutes? I would argue that faith is involved in that action. If you, if you did that, if, you had, if you'd never done that before and somebody said, you know you know, what's really going to help you? Just sit down and follow, pay attention to your breath. Don't do anything for the next 45 minutes. You're like... Why should I do that? That sounds stupid. I'm not going to accomplish anything, right? But we do it because we believe it. We have some faith, and we have some faith because of the various things that stimulate faith. Someone else succeeded with it that we trust. We read a book that inspires us. Or we just have some image. You know, I, I know for me when I first heard about meditation, just the word and sort of the, you know, the aura of it sounded exciting, and I, I already had faith. Uh, It took me about 10 years to get around to doing it because there's there's something else that goes along with faith, which is step three, right? Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. I I, I don't have a problem with the word God in the steps. I have a problem with the word him in the steps. That's the one that I think is unacceptable. Uh, God is just a a metaphor. God is a, a useful term. For and various people have their even what it's a term for the unknown and all that but uh, I'm more interested in the known part of God so if we turn our will in our lives over to the care of the Dharma that's something that can be known and we understand what it is and and so then to turn our will in our lives over to the care of the Dharma we have to understand the Dharma which is what Vince is trying to help you with today When you understand the Dharma, then you can say, oh, this is really, this is what the Buddha said. This is why people get excited about the suttas, because it's like, this is what the Buddha said. We think, I mean, maybe not exactly, but, you know, he was around for 45 years teaching, so the things that were preserved, it's very repetitive. But, you know, that's actually very helpful, because if he had been inconsistent, or if, if it wasn't, a consistent teaching, we'd really be like, what, what did he really say? But there's certain things that get said over and over and over, so we're pretty sure, like that's that was what he was trying to say. And then we're getting into well, what does the Pali mean. Well, that you know, and that gets very challenging as well. Um, so uh, so as you get deeper into Buddhism and into Dharma and and maybe into the, the Pali canon, you get more and more curious about every little word because like a word like sati, right? Mindfulness. Well, everybody, oh, I know what mindfulness is. I mean, you can read a million definitions of it, but then you look at the scholars and they're not really sure what it means. (laughs) That's the thing, right? It's related to remembering, but what? Remembering, so, you know, what? wait a minute, I thought it was about being present. Isn't remembering, like thinking about the past? Like, how is that memory? And it gets, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, (laughs) this isn't as simple as I thought. That little, you know, everything you need to know about mindfulness book that you picked up at the cafe, you know, isn't really going to do it for you after a while. You know, you want to know more. That's where we get engaged in this process. So turning your will and your life over to the Dharma uh, first and foremost, I think it does mean being mindful and, and finding out what mindfulness means. And, and what I would say about Pali, too, is that you get these words, and you get the translations, and you get the Dharma talk, and then you practice. Right? And then you start to like, okay, I'm having this experience. And then you th- think about or reflect again on the words, and after a while, you understand it. But you understand it in here. You might not even have the words for it, but you know. You know when you're being mindful, right? You can feel it. I, I think everybody in this room knows when they're being mindful and knows when they're not. Uh, no, we know what dukkha is. And dukkha is such a great word because because it's not. we don't have an English word for it. So it forces us to come to understand it for ourselves, to really have our own taste of it. The uh, Turning your will and your life over to the care of the Dharma means for me First of all, uh, following the five precepts, practicing mindfulness, practicing loving kindness and compassion,
2: forgiveness, uh, being guided by all those principles right uh,
1: and and so uh, I didn't actually mean to make this a step <laughs> thing, but you know there I am, here I am, here we are, our will and our lives is a a key phrase. So, our will, in Buddhist terms, is our intention. The Buddha says, "Intention." That, he says, "I'm sorry." Karma is intention. It's a very odd phrase, thing that he said, and and as he often did, he was he was taking existing teachings and flipping them, or or you know, turning them, or pointing different lights at them, so that people would have to be kind of jolted out of there. Uh, traditional uh, ritualistic way of approaching things. So the word karma just means action, and the law of karma is actions have results. And and so, but what what the Buddha said is that what really determines those results is the intention behind the action. So what's in your heart when you give to someone? Are you giving that to someone? out of generosity, or you're giving it to them out of the hope that you're gonna get something in return. Same action, completely different intention, the karmic results will do, be different. But we can see this in many things, so intention is key. How can you be aware of your intention? Mindfulness. We have to watch our own minds. This is one of the reasons we are taught mindfulness, just to be able to see, and it's hard to see intention, because we, we lie to ourselves all the time. We deceive ourselves, and intention often happens so quickly You know, that, you know, my intention this morning was to try to help Vince and, and uh, get the, you know, I thought my intention, (laughs) but I also had anger in my voice, which I actually, I wanted to make amends for that, for just being kind of put, throwing that energy into the room in the way I did. It was not skillful, so I apologize for that. And I did, I, I want you to know, if you were concerned about Robin, I actually to her directly so so um, intention so the, when the steps say the, our will in our lives it's actually buddhism again <laughs> it, it, it's somehow the the, found, the authors of the steps understood that intention and action were two different things so they separate w- our will and our lives our lives is, is we can say it's our actions but there are three forms of action uh, and you referred to this this morning, you didn't make it explicit that there that are the three forms of karma, right, did you? So the, so there are three four ways that we make karma through our thoughts, through our words, through our deeds, right? And, and those are all actions in Buddhist terms, and they all have results. You know, you, you think, oh, I just had that thought, you know, it wasn't a bad thing, but whatever we think and ponder upon frequently, this becomes, uh, you know, the habit of our mind, inclination of our mind. And of course, thoughts come before actions. Uh, and so we start to see, oh yeah, it is important what I think. If I walk around with a bunch of angry thoughts, it's gonna come out. So thoughts, words, deeds are all forms of action. So we're turning our will in our lives over. We're trying to harmonize our thoughts, words, and deeds with the teachings of the Buddha, instead of harmonizing them with our ego, right? And we're trying to act out of, you know, in accordance with the Buddha, rather than being driven by our own greedy thinking. Now let me go to step four, uh, where I think there's a lot of rich ways to look at the suttas. I, I realize I'm not reading any suttas to you or anything, but uh, I'll... I might come up with one or two. I have a couple little tidbits in there. Step four is that we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and and I've often said that you know our meditation is in fact a kind of real time inventory. So um, the the work that we do in in uh, in meditation, when we're looking at, for instance, the five hindrances. The five hindrances, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. These are the common things that arise in the mind and body when we're meditating as well as the other you know, 24 hours, 23 and a half hours of the day. Uh, but they, uh, they give us a good way of framing our experience. And, and again, Vince is so skillful in reminding us over and over, this isn't personal. This is one of the real values of taking a, a Dharma approach to the steps that, that one of the things, that, uh, particularly when we get to step four, steps four through nine, where it can seem so personal. It's my story. It's the things that I did. It's the harm that I did. And, and people can fall into despair. People can fall into relapse, into depression. A lot of negativity can come out of you know making this list of all the ways you harmed people. And uh, and so keeping that context of oh these are just the hindrances appearing or this is just greed hatred and delusion and and, uh, maybe I shouldn't say just (laughs) because those those are kind of big things but but remembering that they are human qualities that the Buddha talked about 2500 years ago and he didn't know you personally (laughs) you know he he wasn't pointing his finger at you you know it was like it's like this, you know, we are like this. This is how we are. So we take responsibility for it. It's not as though we say, oh, well, it's just the hindrances. I can't help it. I'm just a human being. I mean, that'd be like saying, I'm just an alcoholic, so give me another drink. You know? No, we're taking responsibility for it. But we're also not taking it personally. We're not, as the Buddha says, the second arrow. You know, there's that. For the first arrow is, I did this painful stuff, and it's it's painful to think about. I did this unskillful stuff. I don't feel good about it, but I'm not going to stick this second arrow in myself, which is not only did I do unskillful stuff, but I'm just a bad person, and I really deserve to suffer. And I, you can just get be full of arrows after a while. And, and this is the really challenging part of this part of the steps, right? Many people, this is where they kind of like, uh, uh. I'm good. Let's jump to step twelve. You know, maybe I'll meditate. Uh, but of course, this kind of self-reflection is vital to to a Buddhist path. You know, it's it's uh, you can't you can't be uh,
2: beyond this path without self-reflection,
1: and it. Uh, you no, know, it's not easy. In uh, last year, I went on two retreats, and. I, Self retreats, and I, one of them I had a just wonderful time. My mind went into great, you know, settled and just very peaceful. The other one I just spent a week in regret. It was really bad, and I was like, man, and and uh, you know, and you know, you feel so stupid because like, you know, you, I thought you're a Dharma teacher. Like, you're, don't you know you've been meditating for forty years? Like, why are you doing this? Because that's why. You fucked up. There's people out there that hate you. So it's the, you know, it doesn't it doesn't uh, necessarily end, or get necessarily easier.
2: Uh, now I'll, I'll get into a little bit of the sutras that i will following. It's one of the uh, James Barris, who's been one of my teachers and one, one of the founders of Spirit Rock. I used to go to a sitting group in Berkeley every weekend.
1: And when he started getting into the suttas about twenty years ago, one night he uh
2: reference here. One night he uh gave a talk on a topic called Noble Friends and Noble Conversation. Let's see. I might be able to find it. This is not organized. Should have had Vince organize everything for me.
1: Uh, no, no. Well, anyway, I, I know the suit pretty well. So the two, it's this great scene I, again. Uh, I like. I think of these things as seeds. You know, uh, the, you really sort of see these
2: screenplays of it. In
1: the the uh, Ananda who was the buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of his life and he was his cousin it seems like m- most of the monks around the buddha were cousins It's an extended family there was this cousin that tried to kill him you know, you know it's kind of like a normal dysfunctional family <laughs> i mean you know his wife is pissed off at him for abandoning her you know um, ananda which uh, and uh, one of the ways the story is told of the of the, of the suttas being collected was that Ananda memorized it all uh, because he had the gift of perfect recall. And so when the Buddha died, it was said that he recited them. which is why many of the, the suttas begin with the phrase, thus have I heard. And thus have I heard is, is the voice of Ananda. So Ananda says uh, to the Buddha something like, well, it's, it's true, uh, blessed one, that... that uh, Isn't it true that uh, noble friends and noble conversation are half of the holy life? And the Buddha says, do not say that, Ananda. Noble friends and noble conversation are the whole of the holy life. And And I remember James saying this. I remember distinctly sitting there that night for that Dharma talk going, what the hell did he just say? That can't be right. Wait a second! What about meditation? You know, I thought meditating was the whole of the holy life. You know, uh, a little attached to meditation, um, and uh, I don't think that the Buddha was really speaking mathematically. It wasn't really percentages that he was talking about, but but really just trying to make the the, the point of the importance of the of uh, noble friends and noble conversation. Now, I do have to find this particular sutta that goes into this.
2: Oh yeah, it's
1: 9.1. So I I wanted to also, while I'm looking for this, tell you that there's the notes on, you didn't mention about the the abbreviations for the sutras, right? Yeah, so, so if you notice on your sutras that that Vince gave you, uh, some of them will say things like the name of the sutta and then parentheses, it'll say like A-N or S-N-D-N. So A-N is, means Anguttara Nikaya, which he has that somewhere there, which is the numerical discourses. So they're collected in different ways. They're, these are, the, the Anguttara Nikaya is lists that have certain numbers of items in them. So there's lists with one item, lists with two items, lists with three items, up to 11. One year I gave talks just every month. I would just go, I went through, the, uh, each month I did something on that, the number of that month. So here's the Noble Prince
2: conversation.
1: So AN is on Nikaya, DN is Digha which is the long discourses, MN, is Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. So let me just read you some of this sutta. This is called enlightenment, which, you know, that should get your attention. It's uh, nine, it's in the, in the book of the nines in the Anguttara Nikaya, and it's number one there. Thus have I heard. On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindicus Park. It's a famous place where the Buddha gave many of his teachings. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, venerable sir, the bhikkhus replied. Bhikkhus means monk. The Blessed One said this. It's interesting, you know, he's called the Blessed One. Just see how that feels to you. Some people might not go for that. Bhikkhus, the wanderers of other sects may ask you, What, friends, is the proximate cause for the development of the AIDS to enlightenment? If you were asked thus, how would you answer them? Okay, this is it. Did you get that question? (laughs) What (laughs) is the proximate cause? Okay, you know what a proximate cause is? It's like something that's necessary for something to happen, but it's not maybe the immediate cause. The proximate cause for the development of the AIDS to enlightenment it seems like it's a couple degrees separate from getting there, but okay. But it's typical of the language of this and why you have to really take some time to like, what, what, what? Bonte, our teachings are rooted in the blessed one, guided by the blessed one, take recor- recourse in the blessed one. It would be good if the blessed one would clear up the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from them, him, the bhikkhus will retain it in mind. Please tell us. We promise to remember. <laughs> then listen, bhikkhus, and attend closely. I will speak. I just see this as a play, you know. It just seems a Greek drama, you know. <laughs> yes, Bhante, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this, bhikkhus. Now we're going to hear the same thing again, right? If wanderers of ever se- other sects should ask you, what, friends, is the proximate cause for the development of the age of enlightenment? You should a- answer them as follows. Here, friends, Abiku has good friends, good companions, good comrades. This is the first proximate cause for the development of the Aids to Enlightenment. Now, did you notice anything about that sentence? Was there any redundancy in there? He had good friends, good companions, and good comrades. Seems like it's all the same thing, you know. Uh, and we see a lot of this in the suttas, so I don't know why, but I infer that it's, first of all, for emphasis. And secondly, um, that it, uh, it it probably has some poetry to it in the Pali language. Like uh, we, We're we reading it in English, so we don't get necessarily what the rhythm of it is. Pali's got its whole. Pali is a dead language, by the way, which makes it even more difficult because it Really, all the translations are just trying to infer things. Okay, so that's what this is—the Book of the Nines. Okay, which means there's going to be nine things. There will not be a quiz, but there's going to be nine. So you can start counting now. One was good friends. Okay, two. Again, friends of Bhikkhu is virtuous. He dwells restrained by the Patimoka, which is the monk's rules—two hundred and twenty-eight of them—as. I don't know. You know, there's a debate about the 220 I've, I've heard, I've heard both. <laughs> Let's say 227, just to be on the conservative side. Possessed, okay. He's restrained by the Pautimukha, possessed of good conduct and resort, seeing danger in minute faults, having undertaken the training rules, he, retrain, he trains in them. So we would just say he practices morality, practices in the precept. So that's two. Again, friends, a bhikkhu gets to hear at will, without trouble or difficulty, talk concerned with the austere life that is conducive to opening up the heart. That is, talk on fewness of desires, on contentment, on solitude, on not getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, on virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the knowledge and, liber- and vision of liberation. This is the third proximate cause. So, this, let's go back to the beginning of this. bhikkhu gets to hear at will. So, basically, what it means, I understand this to mean, one gets to hear the teachings. Vital thing, you know. If you're going to get enlightened, you're going to need to hear the teachings. And that it's like, at will, you know, it's really readily available. You've got all of the talks on your iPod, or your iPhone, or whatever people... Well, that's three things. So we've got friends. We've got morality. We've got the availability of the teachings. Again, a friend has aroused energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities, acquiring wholesome qualities, is strong, firm, and exerting, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. This is the fourth cause, okay? So this is what we call right effort. They've got energy. They're engaged. They're doing it. You know, they're doing the work. We've got four. Again friends, Abiku is wise because this is the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away which is shorthand for impermanence or longhand for impermanence which is noble and penetrative and leads to the destruction of suffering. Now this one gets me a little bit because it says you know, this is the proximate cause for the AIDS to enlightenment and it it says that they're already wise and discerning of, you know, of of impermanence. So it seems like they're pretty advanced, but this is what he's saying. That's number five, right? Okay, so here's where the twist comes in the sutta. Stand back. When bhikkhus, a bhikkhu has good friends, good companions, good comrades, it can be expected of him that he will be virtuous, that he'll, he'll be moral, which is the second one. It can be expected, and then the next, when he has good friends, good companions, good comrades, it can be expected that we will get to hear the Dharma at will. When a bhikkhu has good friends, good companions, good comrades, it can be expected that he will arouse energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities. When a bhikkhu has good friends, good companions, good comrades, it can be expected that he will be wise, possessing the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away. So we've got five things but they all actually depend on good friends and good conversation, sangha, fellowship, community. So telling, right? Again, because in the West, how do we view Buddhist practice? Meditate with your eyes closed. You know, go off into the woods, go on the mountaintop. You know, go get enlightened under the Bodhi tree. It's this very individualistic view of practice, which is very much an American approach to life. You do it yourself. You pull up your bootstraps. You get your own goddamn health insurance. You know, it's... (laughs) Don't expect, you know, people to help you. You know, you're on your own. And so that's a very Western view of Buddhist practice, that you do it alone, and that you're on your own, which is why I actually argue a little bit with even this idea that the Buddha... I don't argue with it, but, you know, I... I don't take it as straightly as some people do, which is the Buddha said you had to get yourself enlightened. You can't depend upon anyone else. So you can't turn your will and your life over to the care of God. You know, that that doesn't make any sense because then you're asking God to do it for you. And it's like, no, that's not what the step is really saying. If that was what the step was saying, then step three would be the last of the 12 steps because you turn your will and your life over to the care of God and you'd be done. I mean, if, if there was a God like that, there wouldn't be any necessary necessity for other steps. But obviously the steps aren't really saying that. They're saying you need to live in harmony with the world, with the with karma, with the dharma. But, you know, we don't do it alone. I don't do it without the Buddha. I don't do it without you. I, I have my, uh, you know, my role in my awakening is essential. I mean, I can't get someone else to do it for me, but Uh, also this idea, I'm just going to go off and do it myself. I mean, I wouldn't have even gotten the first thing. I tried to meditate once before I knew how to meditate. And I lasted less than 30 seconds, you know, until I needed help anyway. (laughs) So we now got five things, but they're all dependent upon good friends and good conversation, or good friends, good comrades, and good companionship. So you probably want to know what the other four are. Because these are, (laughs) I gotta go back to this phrase because it's hard to keep it in my mind. The AIDS, AIDS to the proximate cause. Or is it the proximate cause? Cause to the AIDS. The proximate cause for the development of the AIDS to enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) You got a long way to go, kid. Having based himself, sorry, it's a he, but you know. Having based themselves on these five things, the bhikkhus should develop further four things. The perception of unattractiveness should be developed to abandon lust. This is one of those things that we have trouble with in the West. Like they'll say, you know, reflect on the the, uh, unattractiveness of the body to, you know, get over your lust. It's like, okay, that's not really, we're not really going to go there. But this, here's a way that we can think of it in our addiction. You reflect on... On the unattractiveness of when you're drunk, you know. You reflect on the unattractiveness of alcohol or drugs. Uh, the, you reflect on the unattractiveness of vomiting your lunch. You know. You're, you're, the, that that whole just seeing how ugly addiction really is. So that so the perception you 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 develop an. And, and, and this is essentially about seeing the unsatisfactoriness of sense sense experience. You know that there just isn't something that's going to be the end point for you. And and you know we're not going to in our culture we're not necessarily going to be like oh that's you know disgusting. It's just more like okay I'm I'm not going to am going to understand that striving for that is not going to bring me happiness. And that's this is the essence of it. So the next one is, should be developed. Loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. Mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. Uh, I've never heard it put quite that way. It's so direct. You know, Mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. I wish it always did that for me, but, but it does at times. The perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit I am. Mm. Right. So, if you keep looking at your experience, at your mind-body experience, and you see that it's constantly changing, it becomes very difficult to say, "Well, that's me." No, that's me. No, that thought is me. No, this is me. No, none of them can be me because they're they're not solid. They're changing constantly. So, I can't hold on to this idea of a self if I'm if I've developed the perception of impermanence. Finally, he says, when one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit I am, which is Nibbana in this very life. And Nibbana is the Pali word for nirvana. if you didn't say that. So uh, I love that uh, sutta because of how much weight it puts on good friends, good companions, good comrades. One more. I'll just do one. One more, and then we'll have a couple minutes. Maybe we could take some questions.
2: I know. I know. I can find this one because I've seen it almost every time I went in here. No, okay.
1: This one. There, there are many suttas with this title. This is called the Lion's Roar. Uh, and and they, you know, the Buddha has
2: lions' roars too. And there's actually a magazine, right, called the Lion's Roar. So the, the title suggests
1: this kind of like, you know, I, I, I am going to express my awakening. I'm going to sing it from the rooftops or from the hilltops. So I'll read a little of the introduction and then I'm going to go to the end. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Chetis Grove on Atopinicus Park. <laughs> it's a great story about that. Can I, I'll take the two minutes to tell you this story. Nadapinika was the Buddha's uh, great, he was the greatest benefactor. He was a, a wealthy businessman. And he got inspired when he heard the Buddha's teachings and he wanted to. Uh, he asked the Buddha, would, would it be okay if I built a monastery for you? The Buddha said, Sure. So they looked around. Nadapinika found this piece of land in Savati that he thought was perfect. And, but he found out it belonged to Prince Jetta. So he went to Prince Jetta and said, I'd like to buy this property to build a, a monastery for the Buddha. And Prince jetta said, no way. That's not for sale. That's like my special place. Like you can't have it. And he goes, well, what if uh, I give you, what if I cover the ground in gold coins? And Jettas like, well, every man has his price, you know. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you building this thing? Uh, the, you know, Gautama Buddha, he's my teacher. Must be really good. I, I'm not giving you all of it. I'm going to keep like the gateway, you know, because I want to get some of this good karma you're getting. So Anatta Pindika gave him this um, vast amount of money for this land, but Jetta kept the the gateway into it. I think was the property that he kept. So it's still called uh, Jetta's Grove, but Anata Pindika's Park, and, and you can visit it, right? Visit it. Now, there's a place. It's not. There's nothing there. I don't think. And some monkeys, yeah, uh, but but uh, it, it, the Buddhist spent uh, many many of the rains. He would spend the rains retreat when it was rainy. They wouldn't travel around. So he, uh, but I love Anatta Pindika. You know, he was just really went for it with the gold coins. So the the then the Venerable Sariputta abreast. Uh, so Sariputta was one of the Buddha's leading disciples. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, "Bhante, I have completed the rains' residence at Savati. I wanted to part on a tour of the countryside. <laughs> See him in his little, you know, Maserati out there. Uh, you may go, Sariputta, at your own convenience." Then the venerable Saraputa rose from his seat, paid homage to the blessed one, circumambulated him, keeping the right side toward him, and departed. Then, not there, there's where the twist comes. Right? the plot thickens. Then, not long after Saraputa had left, a certain bhikkhu, who shall remain unnamed because he would be shamed throughout history. That's my parentheses, <laughs> A certain Bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, the venerable Saraputa struck me and set, then set out on tour without apologizing. Hmm. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu, which will remain unnamed. Bhikkhu, in my name, Carol Saraputa, tell him, the teacher is calling you friend Saraputa. So Saraputta hadn't gotten away very far. He's actually walking, of course. Yes, Bhante the bhikkhu replied. Then he approached the venerable Sariputta. The teacher is calling you, friend Sariputta. Yes, friend, the venerable Sariputta replied. <laughs> now on that occasion the venerable Maha Mogalana another big n- name in the group and the venerable Sariputta uh, venerable Ananda took a key I don't know what the, and wandered from dwelling to dwelling. I, I don't know what that means. Some kind of weird Pali thing anyway. Anyway, this is the one, what I like. They went around calling out, come forth, venerable ones, come forth. Now the venerable Sarputa will roar his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One because he's been accused of something he didn't do. Like, he didn't do it, I'm telling you. I hate to, you know, spoiler alert. So, so the Buddha tells him, you know, what happened. He says, "Sarputa, one of your fellow monks has made a complaint about you saying that uh, you struck him and set out on a tour without apologizing. And so the next like three pages are Sariputta. basically he says this, one who has not established mindfulness directed to the body in regard to his own body might strike a fellow monk and then set out on tour without apologizing just as they throw Pure and impure things on the earth, feces, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet the earth is not repelled, humiliated, or disgusted because of this. So too, Bonte, I dwell with a mind like the earth, vast, exalted, measureless, without enmity and without ill will. Okay. Bonte, one who has not yet not established mindfulness, directed to the monk in regard to his own body might strike a fellow monk and set out on to it, oh, on and on and on. He's like, yeah, somebody might do that if they weren't established in mindfulness. But I am established in mindfulness, and that I would could never do that. So this is. I, I should tell you that this is in the Anguttara Nikaya, and it's uh, in the book of the Nines. That's, that's like a little hint. Finally. It says, then that accusing bhikkhu rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over his shoulder, prostrated himself, prostrated himself, I'm uh, thinking about my own problems, <laughs> 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 prostrated himself with his head at the blessed one's feet and said to the blessed one, Bhante, I have committed a transgression in that I so foolishly, stupidly, and unskillfully slandered the venerable Saraputta on grounds that are untrue, baseless, and false. Bhante, may the Blessed One accept my transgression, seen as a transgression for the sake of future restraint. Surely, Bhikkhu, says the Buddha, you have committed a transgression in that you so foolishly, stupidly, and unskillfully slandered the Venerable Sariputta on grounds that are untrue, baseless, and false. (laughs) But, here we go wait for it, but since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, we accept it. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline that one sees one's transgression as a transgression, makes amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, and undertakes future restraint.
2: Step nine!
1: (laughs) Happens to be in the book of the Nights. nine! I don't know. So the the closing, the closing, uh, the Buddha turns to Sariputta. The Blessed One then addressed the Venerable Saraputta. Sariputta, pardon this hollow man before his head splits into seven pieces right here. (laughs) So great. I mean, it's never just like blend. When you get into the language, pardon this hollow, this hollow man. <laughs> you know, I've forgiven him, but he's still a hollow man. Before his head splits into seven pieces, right there, uh, Venerable Sarputra says, "I will pardon this Venerable One, Bonte, if this Venerable One says to me, and let the Venerable One pardon me." I presume he did, but. I like that Saraputta says. You know, he still hasn't apologized. You know, so I'd like to hear the apology straight out. So this is the fun to me of the suttas. It's, there's ju- so much juice in there, and you know, you, you, you have to be patient because it's like, eh, 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 eh. but then, but if you look for them, there are these gems in there that are just they're just so much, so rich. And, uh, and again, uh, you know, where we can see, wow, because I really for years. I had been looking for a sutta that had the word amends in it. I was so happy when I found that <laughs> a, a sutta. I'd never seen one, and like I've never seen one that has powerlessness, and, and you know. Uh, but uh, there was amends, and, and it, yeah, good. We got ten minutes, so we're just about to wrap it up. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it, it's also so in accordance with our understanding, you know, that he'll be forgiven if he makes if he makes this amends. And he makes a commitment not to do it again. Right? It's not just oh, I'm sorry, whatever. You know, it's like this. He admits his transgression, and he makes a commitment to
2: to go continue with it. So that's uh, it's, that's all there for us. So,
1: so maybe if there is one or, one or two questions, yeah, I. Well, the the piece on. Um, on, on the uh, noble friends, noble conversation. That to me actually is, that's kind of, uh, I was trying to br- bring that out. That's one place where clearly the recovery world is founded in Sangha. You know, our our practice is to gather in community. Um, and and I do feel it's something that's uh, not nearly as strong in, in the Buddhist world. I would also say, say that the idea of turning your will in your life over has a kind of power to it, that the way we talk... When people say, oh, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, I think that's saying the exact same thing, which is another reason why I don't think it's necessary to get rid of the 12 steps. Uh, I think that step three is the same as taking refuge. But it's the way it's voiced. When you throw in God it kind of has this energy to it to me. It's like, oh, this is, you know, for, for people in recovery, refuge and turning your will and life over is a life or death issue. And we understand it that way because we know that we can die because of our addiction. But we, but we, we come to embrace that as a way of living. As like our commitment, I think, think, has more power to it than. Then a lot of people who kind of, I, I, you know, and, and this is, again, a straw man kind of argument. Like there's this sort of fictional Buddhist that I like to talk about is sort of like casual about it or kind of like, you know, bedstand Buddhist. Maybe goes on a retreat and like gets really spiritual and gets like the nice scarves and stuff. But, you know, the, the, there's something being held back. You know? I, I mean, I know that, that I practice Buddhism. I thought I was a serious Buddhist before I got sober. And I wasn't, you know, because I was practicing this very narrow version of Buddhism which was about meditation. But it was like completely forgetting about the precepts, really, uh, from, you know, the range of precepts, especially the uh, three and five. You know? and, and um, it's a, Don't look them up right now. But so, uh, yeah, I, for me it's, it's almost more the attitude that we bring. Uh, than necessarily specifics but, uh, but uh, well I, I'd say that the searching and fearless moral inventory is again something that's sort of implied in Buddhism but it's really brought out in the steps uh, you know at the long retreats now uh, at least at Spirit Rock I've ha- heard the teachers talk about people doing a life review which is a term that kind of came into uh, common usage out of uh, Stephen Levine's book A Year to Live but when I started to hear them talk about that, I was like, you know, when I started to practice, if I tried to do a life review on a retreat, they'd be like, stop that. Just get back to your breath. But it, was, it seemed like the, the teachers had kind of started to see that, oh, there is some value in these people doing this kind of uh, self-reflection on their, on their lifetimes behavior, which is, of course, our fourth step. So, yeah, there's some connections in there. I don't think it equals no self, but it's it's you know a a kind of friendly uh, relation, you know. That uh, I mean, if if you truly have see the emptiness of self, the illusion of self, then it's hard to be egotistical. (laughs) So yeah, but I I think you can be humble without understanding not self.
0: Thanks for listening. Um, don't miss our live Dharma talk with Vimalasara on Sunday, December 1st, titled Watch the Triggers. The festive season is here. Vimalasara is going to break down some ticks and tricks on getting through the holiday season. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Love you.